0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: We're unleashing the ability for anyone, anywhere in the world to have an influence and impact by communicating by entertaining by sharing information th- through these digital interfaces and tools and if we can create that in a ethical high value way we're going to create a really great experience for the future and so i think we are i think we're just creating opportunity for everybody on the planet
3: I guess like to people that don't know who you are, this is probably a great opportunity to dive straight into who you are, what you
2: do and why. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Annie Billings. I am a lifelong change leader. Uh, Love working with change. Love working with organizations and leaders to help them successfully navigate change. And I've done that throughout my entire career as a management consultant 25 years at Electronic Arts, where we navigated a very major organizational transformation in the face of massive disruption. And now I've wrapped up that career after a quarter century, and I'm in the give-back phase of my career, where I'm helping other leaders and organizations grow and build their organization. And Disruptions on the doorstep of just about everybody. So, what can they do to get prepared? So, so this morning, working with an organization, working with brand new high technology, three D manufacturing, you know, going kind to of completely revolutionize the manufacturing world as we know it. So, that's what I love doing. That's what I work on.
3: Amazing. And like you, you mentioned that you've been with EA for like twenty five years, and you've seen so much turnaround in the time that you were there. Kind of maybe map through some of the key key turning points in the early years. To, and you mentioned about disrupt, like disruption, some of the, the major transformations and what led to that.
2: That is an interesting story. Um, maybe someday we should make a video game about it. Um, I joined the company a number of years after it had gone public, you know, a few years, usually introduced as adult supervision to a, a group of, mostly young very young people in their first professional careers you know following their pursuit of making games and in the early days we didn't know whether video games would be a, a going business or not so we we had a few other products around a paint box and creator tools we did some financial spreadsheet tools i mean we we just kind of scrounged around to try and figure out what could kind of pull a full business together we moved out of our first set of offices into a really nice professional campus. And the investors who were looking to build the buildings looked at the video game industry and said, yeah, okay, you know, you you seem to have a pretty good business, but we're not sure. They built the buildings to be able to lease them to other Silicon Valley technology tenants. So every floor was suitable to lease to another tenant. And They thought, you know, you guys could go out of business. We need to be able to redeploy this building to someone else. So the industry's really come a long way to become as big, bigger than films and other forms of entertainment. So, you know, literally... Around 3 billion players today, maybe on its way to as many as 5 billion into the future the market, you know, you always see these charts, you know, left and up to the right. And you kind of always are suspect of those kinds of charts when you see them in a business presentation. But that's really been the growth model, double digit growth for a very, very long time in the video game industry. So that's a little bit about kind of the uncertainty of the early years and it looked like there was going to become a an art form and so the name electronic arts was really designed to kind of recognize that we would have artists working in the company just like you'd have a a musical artist and so we would be a creatively oriented company and my job was to actually foster that creativity but at the same time turn it into a business so that we could take something that's very risky and very uncertain like making a video game and turning it into a hit and make that something that we could do predictably and reliably and at a profit. So originally we had lots of external artists and then over time, as we got bigger, we had a hard time running a smooth business where we would have a reliable set of games to offer. And so we took development inside the company and then we took publishing inside the company. that publishing meaning kind of the commercial go to market component of the industry and built a completely well-rounded company. So that was the early early years and you know the consoles were just coming out there were lots of wars between the consoles Electronic Arts navigated that those console wars by not picking a single console to exclusively develop on and to develop across all those consoles and Interestingly, we figured out how to reverse engineer the Sega Saturn one summer and we were able to develop games for
3: the
2: for that particular platform, which is considered a little on the edge um, since they were interested in just having exclusive games developed um, for that platform. And in fact, the console wars were so intense that one of our founders, Trip Hawkins, wanted to develop a very high quality, 3D-capable console called 3DO. And he was so passionate about developing it that he eventually separated out of the company, formed a freestanding console development organization, and um, gave his best effort and quite a bit of significant investment to build that console company, which unfortunately was one of the casualties of that console war. So lots lots of controversy, lots of dynamics in the early going of the industry. And maybe kind of last thing to say about this part of the the history, games were played on PCs, but originally we never thought PCs would last very long. We thought that consoles would give a superior game playing experience. And so we've been really surprised to see that PCs remain a really important platform on which people enjoy and play games and, you know, continues to this day. So, it didn't turn out to be a casualty of that console war phase. So that was us in the early years and phenomenally profitable in a relatively simple business model, Peter, where we'd make a game. A game would only take maybe a year to make, sometimes a year and a half. If it was brand new. You'd take it to market. You'd launch it at Best Buy or Media Mart in Germany or thursday you'd you'd come into the store lots of people would line up to get their release you go home and play that game it was maybe maybe 30 to 40 hours of entertainment and from us as a as a game developer we were pretty much done with the game at that point we were just gonna go on and make the next game you know people could enjoy that game maybe we'd sequel it maybe we'd gone and make another um, another property but at that point we were really done and so our customers were really retailers and our relationship with our players was was much more modest at that time. But the good news at that time was, you know, extremely profitable and growing very, very rapidly.
3: I guess like also during that time period, once a game's out, you were kind of done at that point. But there's another part of the story in respect to trips alignment with sports franchises, and specifically Madden, and kind of how that evolved over the test of time.
2: Yes, originally some controversy over who approached who. Did Madden approach Electronic Arts? Electronic Arts approach Madden. So there's no sense um, spoiling that mystery to people. But in any event we we connected and we proposed a game to that would have I believe it was going to have six or seven players per side instead of the standard. You know, for for people listening in Europe, American football has 11 a side. John Madden said that will not do. He will not put his name on a game that's not realistic and, and modern. And so he wanted to have a completely true-to-life game. And so that really started our partnership with him where we had our best effort to make realistic games that simulated professional u.s football and he was a terrific partner because he was really demanding in terms of what would go into the game and at that time these were relatively basic games and relatively basic animation and the characters were kind of blocky and he kind of lived with all of that um you know and was able to ultimately see the, the you know the evolution of full 3d photorealistic games And so that was a really a foundational part of Electronic Arts, helped us get our sports business going, our sports platform going. And then from there, we branched out into international football, international soccer, as we call it in the U.S., and golf and baseball and a whole other variety of of, uh, games. And that also was the beginning for us of a licensing approach where we would work with a celebrity or we would work with a professional organization or we might work with a film and license that idea. And so that was that was another kind of a big phase of growth where we were went through a licensing phase and uh, you really helped to grow the company substantially by all those kinds of external partnerships.
3: Yeah. And you were at the time, I remember back in the early nineties, I was playing like, what was it on Sega Mega Drive and the early iterations of FIFA. And I remember then transitioning to Xbox and being, well, we had the the Saturn and other bits and pieces in between, but I remember the next key platform for me was the Xbox and playing like Tiger Woods. I was obsessed by Tiger Woods back in the day and, you know, Games like Tony Hawk's, uh, I felt, had a, a massive impact. I know it wasn't one of EA's, but at the time, it had that like cultural trend, the, the ability to bring in new players to the environment, and it was just setting the scene. There was loads of amazing content coming out at that point in time, and you mentioned about licenses. It's interesting to see as well the evolution of how licenses have changed now. I know that like EA have shifted away from from FIFA, for example, and and now have a very different agreement in play Uh, well no agreement it's a very different uh, model as to how they're going to bring out future content for the soccer side of things but yeah like ea were they're always in the game as this as the famous saying goes and it's they had a huge impact on me in my early early years as a gamer and subsequently like the time in which I came and worked for them. So there's a load that went on in that early 90s. But I think that similarly to how fashion and movies and music can kind of set that cultural trend, like gaming, um, for my generation at least, has, has had that same impact. Yeah.
2: yeah. Peter, just to build on your point there, kind of in those early decades in the industry and in electronic arts, there was a sense that. This is not an art form, and that people would say this is not like music, this is not like films, this is some you know this is somehow these computer games are somehow synthetic and not creative. And so, one of the things that we did was to create a uh, we established a program called the Creative Leaders Program, in which we got our game designers and our most creative senior leaders together, and we worked with MIT, we worked with university in Southern California. We went, started to work with art organizations. We went to museums. We worked with uh, professional musicians with the idea of helping our creative leaders understand, you know, what is an art form and how does it become a cultural force, whether it be electronic entertainment or whether it be literature or plays or things of that sort. And it was designed to do two things. One, to build the confidence of an industry as as a creative force, and then secondly, to give them some of the ideas and practices around how are other art forms created? How could we adapt that into electronic art? So we took something that was very ad hoc and very improvisational and done with just a very few people in the early years to something that became very substantial with creative roles, music, soundtracks, visual theming, art direction, stories and characters that had plots and depth to them so all of that started to evolve the, the the game games world really into a i'd say a cultural force that could not only just follow culture but also start to shape culture and i think it was a big day in in the history of electronic arts when the first music group approached us to ask if they could break their new musical offering into one of our games as part of the soundtrack, and when the game launched, it would be the launch of their, their that musical song, and so that seemed like a pretty cool pivoting point in the industry.
3: Who was the band? If you don't mind me asking,
2: I believe it was an early rap song. I'm not sure I can quite remember it, but I do remember at the time that we got excited enough that we actually formed a music publishing label and began to and hired a, <clears throat> a professional music producer into the company and that was the beginning of um, a partnership with the music industry
3: yeah and like the the soundtracks are so iconic like if you can dive onto anywhere like you jump on spotify or go onto youtube and you know there's, there's copious amounts of ea soundtracks for for games and you know that like that cultural alignment this is a nostalgia piece it, it you can remember through songs what you were playing back in the day and it's um yeah it has a real big impact on my generations and also the ones that followed. You mentioned a lot about the leadership that was done around there, but I'm interested in getting your take on how leaders shape the future because that's that's quite a big thing for you.
2: Let me talk a little bit about the disruption that rocked electronic arts and Talk about how we use leadership development as a as a response, as a coping mechanism to deal with that massive amount of disruption. So, you know, kind of back where I left off that story, we were we were making games that were sold at retail and that had no live service. Internet was just emerging at that time. So our go-to-market strategy was to sell through retail channels. And that was around, you know, that was about… Um, not quite 20 years ago, a couple of forces came along, the internet, live services, higher technology games, and we ran into a massive technology disruption where competitors were creating live service games available through the internet with a very long life cycle after them in which people actually enjoyed playing with each other i mean the 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 first model was play with your friends in your living room and the new model looked to be you're going to you're going to play with friends and maybe even people you've never met before globally and so in 2006 2007 we went from a extremely profitable company to uh, one year i think we lost uh, for out of a four billion dollar turnover We lost a billion dollars, and so we realized we are really in desperate shape here. You can't lose 25% of your revenues every year and survive very long, even if you have quite a cash reserve. So we realized that we had a massive disruption to take on, and we used leadership development as a tool to help the company rethink our business model. And our organizational model, really, from all dimensions of it. So, for instance, the way we reached our, our players was uh, through retail. Now we could reach them electronically and digitally. Our model used to be just a, a unit sale. Now now it became a live service. And we seriously underestimated how hard that transition would be for the company. And we used leadership development to help us think about the depth of the change and how we would respond to the change. And we had leadership development of a couple of flavors. One of them were groups of 10 to 12 people that would come together for six or eight months and try and work on a particular problem, like how are we going to change our approach going to market or how are we going to make games in a different way or how do we break into a new genre and we would call those strategic action teams or breakthrough teams. And then we also had cohorts of people that would, we would work with for about a year and a half to two years. And that would bring along a certain type of leader, like a producer leader, producer in the game industry, or <clears throat> people that are responsible for both the creative and the commercial side of the game. And we were desperately short of those people. And we also needed those people to be attuned to leading through a transformational period in the in the life of the company and so all those leader programs helped people become not only better leaders in the kind of in the classic people and organizational leadership but be be better business people better f- business thinkers that could be thinking about how to completely change our business model so we've we've run leader development programs for more than a couple of decades also to provide future leaders inside the company. So that's kind of the idea of leader, leader shape the future is if you can get, get the right leaders, hold on to them, retain them, appreciate them, recognize them, give them growth opportunities and give them some of the skills and concepts that they become, they become your change agents.
3: Yeah, I remember when I was was out at Dice for a little bit and um, I first came into contact with one of your your SLX um, Studio Leadership Accelerator teams. And yeah, just the conversations that were flowing there. You know, it was really inspiring to me that we had a group of people that were really focused on cultivating that future conscious thinking and behavior to kind of drive more awareness to not just about... The short term goals that the company had but equally like what does a company look like in the next five, ten years, and how do we how do we get there and and what does the whole landscape look like in the future like I think when we have a, the opportunity to sit back and reflect and look at industry as a whole, I think that's when the best learnings and best lessons come from thro- from because we we take the time to to imagine what's possible rather than kind of just focus on the short term.
2: Yeah, that that reminds me of some of the content that we put into those programs. We always kept refreshing the content because our understanding what the future was going to be continued to evolve. Peter, I don't think anyone can completely predict the future, but we can certainly anticipate what it likely may look like. We can anticipate some of those trends. And so in our leader development experiences, we would ask leaders to kind of go two to three years into the future and try and solve the issues that we would see the company facing in two to three years, whether it be, how are you going to make a game globally with development people in five or six different locations? How would you make a game working with very sophisticated outsourcing partners? How would you make a game that maybe had a merchandising and retail partnership associated with it? Give people those problems two to three year, years before they kind of occurred, one, they would practice. And then some of those scenarios came true and some of those ideas then would stick inside the company since we'd already we'd simulated those kinds of experiences. And so that to us was how you prepare for the future is as best you can go to the future and practice.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess like how were those people chosen and like what did they go on to achieve? What where did the people end up that were kind of part of these studio leadership teams? We had a
2: variety of focus points for those leader programs, depending on where we were short in terms of having a group of people prepared to take on a certain role. Let me just tell you a little bit about what I mean. You know, in the banking industry that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, There are there's a whole pool of people that understand how to lead banking organizations, how to lead them technically, how to lead them organizationally. In the gaming industry, for us, there was no there was no earlier generation of game leaders, so there weren't people that understood how to lead game organizations, especially in a very rapidly changing field. So we couldn't take MBAs, and we couldn't take people out of competitors because they just weren't available. So our challenge was really to build and create our own leaders that were sophisticated about the game industry and were ready to. Work through all that massive change and disruption that, that we were starting to see come. So, sometimes we would have programs that really focused on studio leaders. That was the studio leader accelerator program that you talked about. Sometimes we realized we will need a group of people that are going to be more general managers and general organizational leaders. And we would have a program tailored to that where they had different experiences. Sometimes we trained software development leaders. We had programs that would focus on marketing leaders to try and help them understand kind of the new emerging marketing methods and practices and and how would you lead a go-to-market organization of the future. So, you know, over a number of decades, we just had a variety of different programs, each with a little different focus. So I think you could probably hear my bias is that the best leadership development experiences are things which are One, just in time, so that you're getting that experience just before you go into that role or even early days of being in that role, and that it's got the content and experiences that are really relevant to the specific industry that you're in. So our programs always had either, if you want to call them that, faculty, leaders, content presenters that were in the company or were from partners, so that's you know, we didn't typically have an MBA professor come. We would have an industry leader, might have a musician, might have a television expert, and we would try and learn from those kinds of people or a sports marketing guru. So those would be, you know, some of the external people. And then we just, as I mentioned before, we just kind of mixed in all of that simulation work. So what we're really doing, we're trying to fill in holes in our talent plan, our people plan, and the idea of acceleration... Let me just spend a minute on this one. If you're trying to grow your company and you need a certain kind of leader type to be successful, if you can take your existing people that are not quite ready and accelerate their readiness, that's the word accelerate, maybe, maybe get them ready for more senior roles two to three years earlier than they would on their own. That's a huge business advantage and you can begin to take on those growth opportunities because you now have the leaders. So for instance, the studio leaders accelerator, what, what really prompted that is one day we realized we have more opportunities to make games than we have the people to make them. We've got partners, we have license opportunities, we have lots of growth there, but we really don't have the people that are capable to do it. So, you know, we we came up with the accelerator to take promising people. That was the selection criteria, also people that we thought would want to stay with a company, another another criteria, and then we work with them intensively with the idea that they would spin out of the program and then take more senior, more responsible roles. So over the course of, you know, a number of decades, a large number of the people in the organization had become alum were alumni out of these accelerator programs and out of the general management accelerator programs, I think Right now in the C-suite of electronic arts, about a third of those people are alumni out of these accelerator programs. And and they would give a lot of credit to those internal leadership experiences, as opposed to only growing by external hires with people that you picked out of organizations that were substantially bigger and were ready to take on those, those areas of responsibility. So the idea of taking high potential people and accelerating them, making them go faster in their career turned out to be a pretty big business advantage
3: and you also kind of set up the ea university but like before i ask the question about what what was the advantages of the ea university i wanted to understand like the the difference in shift of culture between when you first joined ea at the beginning of your 25 year tenure to when you started implementing the studio leadership programs how did that impact ea's culture at the time
2: We started those EA University, which is our internal learning and development organization, since been renamed, but that's what we called it in those early years. And the accelerators, these were specifically designed to be change initiatives. So we realized we were being massively disrupted. We realized we were going to grow. We realized there was no existing pool of game company leaders to draw from, to hire out of. So all of these leader and learning programs out of EA University were designed to create a, an organization filled with people that loved games and were technically qualified to take on increasingly responsible positions. So EA University was was started and funded out of our studios organization. Paul, Paul Lee, that was our was our studio COO at the time, realized that that we just didn't have enough high-capability engineers, enough high-capability graphic artists that that could do their craft on computers. And so he funded the start of EA University, which is designed to be like the internal development arm to to get people up and ready to make games using the the latest technology available at the time. Today, in the games industry, there are freestanding programs and academies where you can get your career started. But at the time, there, there wasn't a place to learn that. So we just, we provided all of it ourselves. And Peter, one of the other things I think that people really enjoyed about being participants at EA University, one, wasn't necessarily like go and take a class. EA University always went to the game teams and the learning mod, the, the learning format was let's let's work with you on the specific game that you're making whether that be the visual content for an artist or the software content for a for a software engineer and let's expose you to new ideas new tools new methodology shortcuts advancements as you work on your own game and so Staff from Electronic Arts University went out into the studios and out into the game teams and embedded with those teams. Might work with them for three or four months at a time to help lift a team at a, at a critical juncture. So it wasn't a bricks and mortar. Leave your job and and take a you know get a degree. It was EA University kind of came to you and and work with you. And you know we see that learning model a lot these days with things like um, online learning experiences where you're getting very short bursts of learning two three minutes maybe ten minutes maybe take a couple of hours of courses online so you know that kind of uh, models you know has has been pretty effective short easy to absorb don't disrupt people's um, work productivity in fact use their work experiences as part of the learning experience so that that was a kind of you know one of the hallmarks of EA University.
3: I guess like one of the other things, because we mentioned disruption a few times throughout the um, podcast so far, but from an industry perspective, in the 2010s there was another massive disruption in respect to the shift from packaged goods to more digital. Everybody kind of saw the opportunities in respect to live servicing, esports, subscriptions, mobile. How did that impact the leaders of the time, and also how did EA shift towards that kind of change in landscape and embrace the, this this new disruption that was occurring in industry?
2: Yeah, yeah, good good question. So remember there was the early days were kind of the sunshine, no clouds in the sky, everyone's happy, making great games, industry's growing, went into this massive period of disruption. We, we had a big recession in there, 2008 internet was appearing the capa- the technology was now available that you could distribute games digitally and p- play them in a live service way and so i think maybe one of the lessons l- learned for anyone that's working through a transformation is to be very thoughtful about the depth of transformation required remember we we're a packaged goods company now migrating into a live service environment that's a 24 hour seven-day-a-week kind of environment, while we made some really good efforts, we we made some serious missteps and had some serious setbacks. Let, let Let me talk about a couple of them. For two years in a row, we won the Worst Consumer Company Award, and we beat out some exciting competitors like cable companies and banking companies. And, you know, while that was a huge wound in our pride, we took that pretty seriously around how is it that we could win that award and i think what we finally realized is that we really weren't as closely in touch with our players as we should have been thought we were so remember we came from an organization where our customers were the retailers the players were the end users and yes we understood them but we didn't understand them in a in a live service understanding every keystroke that they're making and so we set about doing a whole series of changes in the company to get much closer more insights into those players so we started bringing players into our studios they started looking at our concepts we started play testing our games dramatically earlier remember now games had gone from being something you could do within a year to something now a major new game could take three to five five years so we started bringing players in we started forming relationships with very deep and experienced players that would like a genre so for instance they might be fifa football players and they would come in they were experts in the game and they would play the early thoughts about the new game as the game was being developed they would try out the new features and give us intensive feedback and over time many of those those kinds of players became the streamers and influencers that we know today and so that became another way to understand not only the audience but begin to reach audience in a completely different way through much more interactivity and making players really part of the organization. And so you had titles appearing in the company like head of player experience and head of player relationships. And we started hiring people whose whole job was really just to get closer and tighter to that player audience. So that was on the customer experience side, get much closer to those players. Another kind of misstep we meant We took, actually cost us our CEO at the time. So disruptions actually are longer and harder than a lot of us like to think. And we were making a game called uh, SimCity 4, which is a, it's an architectural game, a building game. It was going to be our first effort at an online service game where your cities would stay online and you could go back to them every day and you could work on them with your family and friends. The, your cities were residents in the internet. It was a little early; we didn't call it the metaverse at the time, but it's kind of there. There it is, resident in that virtual environment. We seriously underestimated the difficulty of running a live service of that type on a global basis, and we probably also discovered some things about the company around willingness to take feedback, peer review engineering architectural reviews some some really important changes need to be made in the way we made games and in the way we helped each other make games and so the weekend that that game launched the game crashed and it crashed severely and people lost their cities and you know they lost like a weekend of their time and we'd been promising them like the most phenomenal experience you're ever going to have online you know the players were just incensed and We really struggled to get the game back up. The game had much bigger demand than we expected. We got millions more players than we were thinking. The way we had our servers configured around the world didn't turn out to be able to handle that capacity, and we had a hard time getting our servers and capacity back up. That seriously hurt our image. That certainly hurt our pride. It it, uh, caused us to take a deep look at how we made games and how we had reviews and all that work you do before you launch a game to make sure it's really tested and ready. Unfortunately, we launched that game in the last quarter of a difficult fiscal year. And that game didn't hit its financial expectations. That led to the year not hitting its financial expectations. And John Riccatello was our CEO at the time. As a CEO needs to do, when you seriously miss your financial expectations, the CEO has to take take that responsibility. And so John Riccatello resigned associated with that whole experience and people really love love John Riccatello charismatic you know champion of game development a gamer and so forth so it was a really really dark day when John Riccatello said you know given you know in light of where we are we you know I need to step away from the company and it triggered yet another way for us of doubling down on the whole transformation effort and taking even more seriously the amount of change that we would need na- need to take in all parts of the company to seriously become a player in the live, live services world. So fortunately we've we've moved on from that. We've moved into that live service and now today we're around 90% digital and about 10% retail in terms of the sales of our games. And all all games can be played online and most of our games have a multiplayer dimension to them. So, you know, it's taken about fifteen, depending on how you want to date it, fifteen to twenty years to make the transition from consumer packaged software sold at retail to a fully online live service experience for players that with an experience that could go for four five, six, seven years.
3: And who came after John? Was that was that the time that Andrew came in? Or who came after John?
2: Larry Probst had been our chairman and the very long term CEO of the company. When John Riccitello left, we didn't have an immediate successor, number one. Number two, the organization you know, was pretty shocked by all of that. You know, It's a pretty proud organization. And the idea was to have the, you know, a veteran come back and try and turn the company around and dig into some of those issues and then find out who would be the next CEO. So the idea was that uh, Larry Pross is the chairman. Would we'll come back and also run the company f- uh, for a period of time, and then, and then Andrew Wilson became the CEO a couple of years later. I think. Hold
1: up.
4: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Andrew's been at the helm for quite a while now. Like, looking at his, his tenure, how would you assess the evolution of EA under Andrew? And also, from a brand perspective, how would you assess EA's brand both internally and externally? Because long before... Like I, I started at EA, there was always a quite a negative touch about EA in respect to releasing games that weren't quite finished. And there was a def, definite disconnect between the player universe, as we went on to call it, to the company. How would you assess brand and also the evolution of Andrew during his tenure?
2: Yeah, good question. The really deep dynamic here is between a creative organization and a business organization a creative organization would like to take as many years as it takes to get a game to the level of excellence and quality that you would like a business would like to have games developed in a predictable way at a defined cost and you know make it all very predictable so we were now at this point starting to become big enough to have a portfolio of games and we changed the way we reviewed our games during their life cycle, and we began to not set release dates artificially, if you will, or mechanically, if you will, before the game had had even been planned and developed. It was like, Peter, you and I are going to make a game. We're not sure exactly what it is, but it's going to release in three years on March 31st. In the creative process, we wanted to now first plan the development of the game and get a sense of how long it was going to take to develop that game, and then we would set the release date. And that would make that would help us make sure that we had enough time to get the game to a higher level of quality than we might necessarily if we just fixed the fixed the release date. And so that really helped us make consistently higher quality games and and deal with. With what was a legitimate player concern around, you know, how, how consistently good are your games? The other dynamic in the games industry is that the players are very vocal. At least at least one percent of the player group is very vocal. If they're not happy about something, they certainly let the world know. There are lots of now digital arenas to go do that, and there there's a whole component of the game game players group that wasn't adjusting to the idea that you would monetize games that there would be a business of games that are live service and a game might be free to play free to buy but the business needed to to generate money and so there was a lot of player frustration with well, you know why do i have to if it's a racing game why do i have to pay to have a new look or feel for my car you know maybe it's a micro transaction and so probably both electronic arts and the games industry really struggled to introduce that concept clearly so that people understood, yes, the game's going to be free in this way, but you're going to have opportunities to spend money on it. The other thing that I think we learned, the industry learned, was to still make the game fair and enjoyable if it was a free-to-play game to those that didn't want to spend money on the game. And so Spending money on the game didn't necessarily give if if I had a big wallet and you didn't that doesn't mean that I could outcompete you or win the game Peter that would mean I might have a different look and feel and I might have some cool gear or weapons, but it didn't unbalance the game and so that's another big change that's that's taken place is the games are still fun and accessible whether you want to pay money or you don't want to pay money and so that was another kind of lesson learned a lot from just working with players and getting um player input player feedback and you asked about andrew you know how how did he do andrew grew up making games grew up inside the company grew up inside the studios worked on fifa and our sports games and you know had a very deep feel for what's involved in making games and so when he came to be the ceo he also realized that it's important to release games when they're ready to be released not like the Sims 4 experience or not like other games that didn't delight and excite the players the way we would like like them to be. And so he was able to build a a planning process that would allow for some unpredictability and some, some potential slips in the release of games. So you had a set of games that would release very regularly and then marbled into that could be games that were a little more unpredictable when they were released. But you were release them when they reached higher quality, and so that that's helped our image with players. I would think, though, forever players are going to be a very restless, irreverent, demanding group. So I, I don't imagine that any game company is ever going to get rave reviews from everybody.
3: Yeah, and you know, not every gamer are going to vent their their views on what what a specific game is like I remember we used to be quite obsessed with like Metacritic scores and so on and so forth but I think to EA's advantage one of the biggest things that, in, in my opinion that they did was kind of double down on quality over quantity we did go through a long period of time where you know look back into the back catalog we were releasing lots and lots of games over a a long duration of time and you know the question should be asked whether the games that were released were of quality or is it was it just a case of quantity and I guess like also as we went through the numerous disruptions and transformations that you you mentioned one of the things that companies often do when they go through periods of uh, transformation is they set clear concepts or clear pillars. And I'd be interested to get your take on the pillars that EA set in respect to like results through relationships, team of leaders, play to win strategies, and the foresight insight action model.
2: Yeah, those are all kind of just naming of initiatives and approaches that we use just help the company be become a a more effective company and work itself through a major set of transformations. We spent a lot of time on vision and purpose, maybe more time than other companies would typically spend. So we, we polled the entire company around, what do you think the company should be? Where do you think it's going? What do you think the purpose of the company is all about? We spent a lot of time on what do you think the values of the company should be around creativity, achievement, productivity? What should be the climate for the people that work work there? And out of that, we came to a, a vision statement that was uh, inspire the world to play. Didn't necessarily mean play video games, just meant to inspire the world to have a more p- playful, lighter sense of enjoyment with their world and that the way we would contribute to that is to make the world's greatest games. And so by framing ourselves as an entertainment company and a company about play, as opposed to being a technology company, you know, it was a big big shift in the mindset and the culture. And then with the idea of being the best games company, didn't necessarily mean the biggest one, but be the best one. Also really emphasize this idea of quality and, meeting player expectations and so so you often hear in conversations hey i don't think that's what a that's not what a best games company would do that that practice you've got going is that something and they would hold it up to that purpose that that filter and say you know one is that inspiring the world to play and two does is that compatible with us being the world's greatest games company and so that led us to have a lot of internal debate about what was working well keep it you know what wasn't working well what didn't kind of measure that value set and how would we go about making those changes and the games industry is organizations are pretty decentralized in their studio but those are like company-wide purpose statements and kind of help make the make the company a, a, a more cohesive community and we're all kind of pulling against those kind of common purposes one of the things that we would do a lot of, to build culture and to support our purpose. You could call them lots of things, and we did, but they are basically celebrations of making games and celebrations of the people making the games. We call them summits. We call them town halls. We call them different kinds of conferences, but we would regularly invest in getting people together and getting people inspired, excited, charged up about the world of making games. We'd have players come in. We'd have all kinds of experiences, um, for people that would come to those things. And so they were really like kind of revive the spirit, revive your engagement, revive your motivation. And they were, you know, they were, they were entertaining, they were engaging and that kind of reached the the hearts and souls of people in the company to try and keep them connected to that purpose and to help them have the right mindset to kind of approach what, what's it going to take for us to be a successful games company. So lots of uh, lots of investments there over the years.
3: I guess one of the things that a lot of companies are doing now is, you know, you mentioned purpose, but so many companies are looking at the change in landscape and they're realizing that the the world has changed. Like we we're entering into very much a crater economy at the moment. And also in respect to the geopolitical challenges that we face in front of us, the whole landscape of the economy is is evolving almost on a daily basis. What do you feel is going to be that like that next transformation, that next iteration. Because when I look at the landscape at the moment, I'm very much intrigued by, you know, some of these cross-pollination of content. So if you see um, things like The Last of Us or Arcane that goes onto Netflix, that's really intriguing to me. And likewise to, you know, you mentioned things like the metaverse, but, but also the impact of AI. Like, I'd love to get your take on that.
2: Yeah, those are lots of lots more disruption at our doorstep. You know, I mean, Peter, I think you and I have been talking about the idea that disruption is probably one of your constant companions as as an organization. You might survive one set of disruptive forces only to, you know, have a few quiet years and then to kind of face more disruption. So that's definitely true in the entertainment world. You covered a lot of um, challenges. First of all, the technology is, is really impressive in terms of, how to deliver a digital experience to a global audience. So our ability to put things up in the cloud through Amazon, Microsoft, Google, their cloud services allow us to put very complex games with a a huge amount of information in them and make those available globally around the world with a very short latency in terms of the delivery. So for anyone that's not in the gaming business, latency just means the the length of time between when you push a game control or a key on your keyboard and how long it takes to actually respond in the game in front of you visually. Those capabilities are now so impressive that you feel like you are there. You feel like those are real-time interactions with your friends, with players, and with the characters in the screen. So that's been a that's been a huge transformation. And I imagine it's going to continue and we talked about the merging of experiences video games have have now kind of translated into films and graphic novels and other kinds of entertainment so i think in the future we'll continue to see that blur where you're going to be able to see linear film content in a game you're going to be able to play the film you're going to be able to play that experience and with the technology capacity that we've got, we're going to be able to have a, a substantially greater repertoire of game experiences, ranging from very small games to things that you know maybe will take hours and hours for you to play and master. I think that's important because the attention span of entertainment consumers has gotten shorter and shorter. Where did I hear someday, somewhere, the average video experience now is something like 10 seconds. So we do expect to see video with good sound and good video quality, and it's going to be very brief and there'll be a huge amount of it. So the the future I think of entertainment is going to become much more transmedia where it's going to be a story, a character, an experience, and you can experience it on your mobile phone, you can experience it in your living room, on a console or a PC, you can go to a theater and you're going to start to recognize that intellectual property, that character, that story, that narrative, you know, you can enjoy it in lots of different places. And, you know, we're starting to see this with things like the Star Wars and other Disney experiences that have that mass marketing ability to, to show up in all kinds of different formats. So I think exciting time for entertainment and challenging because now you've got creative forms and technology forms at which once used to be separate, now we're starting to blend and and to merge. Where 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 I think we're gonna see this most is going to be in the in the area of sports, where people are watching a professional sporting event on television. They're texting and interacting with content from that sports events on their mobile phone. Maybe they're playing some parts of it on a on a on a video game. You know, who knows what's coming next. And there may also be some virtual experience where people can go in and talk or interact with others around that particular sports content. So, you know, there's an example of what the future of sports entertainment might look like.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think one of, you know, so many things we can pick apart there. But like when we talk about like clouds, one of the I remember when EA acquired game fly out in Israel. And I thought, well that was a fantastic acquisition back in the day because it was kind of quite forward thinking as to what we we're aiming to do. But then equally When you look at the broad spectrum of of how the entire landscape is evolving, you mentioned about duration of time people pay attention. I think I'm sure I heard it was like three seconds or something ridiculous. So like people's attention spans are shorter, but then still at the very same time, the longer form content is providing an awful lot of value. So, you know, we have huge scope. And this is where when I I was at EA, I I used to get a little bit frustrated because I'd be like, we have huge scope in respect to our legacy or our like our back catalog and we're not utilizing that to the extent that we could so we we did have a a little go with like ea play and ea access but it wasn't to the you know types of models that we see with netflix but then again we have real opportunity to partner with partners such as netflix to do these cross collaborations i think we have to be aware when we do look to collaborate just as to the importance of franchise, because as we grow, we, we've got to make sure that we don't, you know, cannibalize our key franchises, but equally we allow space, time, and almost like a sandbox experience somewhere of an area for these franchises to grow and evolve because, you know, people look to things like FIFA or they look to things like Call of Duty and, They get stale after a period of time. There's only so many first person shooters that you can play. In in my opinion, I'd love to see more compelling narratives. And that's where, you know, we can look back to BioWare and stuff like that, The, the, the titles that they used to bring out. Like there was amazing depth of story and content and storytelling. I think that although people do have short attention spans, that deeper immersive content. I think is, is still going to be key, but ultimately, how do we deliver that? Is it with partnerships with others, or do we double down and and actually try and create something more value internally? Like that's still a decision point that I think is still there for EA to solve.
2: Yeah, Peter, good point. Maybe maybe the the thread that pulls them all together would be around being a good storyteller, being an effective creator of a narrative with plots and characters and emotions that hold our attention and You'll have storytellers that are expert in games. You'll have storytellers that are expert expert in film. There'll, there'll be new storytelling experts, you know, as as we go, you know, to whatever the metaverse becomes. And so, I would imagine that we will we'll be collaborating, whether it's all under the same organizational umbrella, or whether it's you know, partner to partner. But I'm imagine that that thread of storytelling is going to be a key part because that's that emotional engagement is is what will hold on to people's attention, you know, longer than the three seconds that that you mentioned.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's the same, not just within the games industry, but further afield, you know, we're both in transformational change and we both do a lot within consultancy. But that ability to really create that emotional pull if you look at things like movement thinking for example which we we chatted a while ago with a a guy called scott goodson and the the power of movement thinking the ability to really galvanize people both internally and externally to a company towards a common cause you can only really do that if it's some form of embedding into an emotion and embedding into a kind of a societal change or a whim or an event that you can kind of almost wrap that around and I think when when companies start investing more in those that can articulate a really compelling story and create levels of layers and levels of emotion to it then you know we are going to get more complex and more enjoyable experiences from be that gaming or wider afield in respect to wider media
2: as a whole yeah well said well said yeah a lot a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to and you talked about the creator economy which which kind of gets everyone in into the experience of creating and contributing i think artificial intelligence is going to enable us to make it easier for people to create modifications or content their stories and it's going to we're, we're going to see that go from 1% of people participating in entertainment to something that's sub you know, it's, a, you know it's, it's, it's something that's bigger and games like roblox which are you know, amazingly effective at holding people's attention. You know, is, is really about the ability to allow people to have fun by creating things and sharing them with each other.
3: Yeah, for sure. How do you think that the increased presence of like AI in games and and the wider cultural response to technology will shape the industry's future?
2: Uh, cu- a couple thoughts on that. One, one is something I'm pretty sure about, and something that I'm not so sure about. We've been using various forms of artificial intelligence in game development for for at least 10 years. We've been using it to test games. So you can simulate a game being played with an artificial intelligence environment. And you can can have that game played 100,000 times. And then out of that, you can see where's the game fun? Where does it get slower? Are there issues and bugs that would be very hard to do you know, by having human testers do that, just couldn't, couldn't do the numbers. You can also generate software code and you can generate content, meaning I could generate landscapes and pictures and characters and things of that sort by using artificial intelligence. So we've been able to use it to keep the cost of entertainment down. As these games get bigger and bigger, more complex, the stories get get more complex, It gets it's more and more expensive to build a game. And so artificial intelligence has been a way of keeping the cost down so that players can get a, a pretty complex, pretty deep experience at not a lot more money than it used to cost. So the cost per hour of entertainment is declining, not increasing. Yeah, for sure. How do you think that AI has improved like the personal gaming experience? Well, first of all, you, you probably wouldn't have a Sims 4 crash experience. That would probably be... That would probably be detected and solved in the testing phase. I think that you get much more content available with artificial intelligence and you get a better play experience because the game has been played, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of times in a simulated environment. And so all of that goes to polishing uh, and making the experience better. That's, that's like if you go out on the street and you see a a self-driving car that's out there practicing, all of that's going to make that car a better car for us when we're actually in there and it's driving us, driving for us. So I think improved, an improved experience is, is probably one of the, the biggest things. That, what I was going to say, Peter, in terms of the unknown is the generation of new ideas and new content is really uncertain. So most game companies and most entertainment companies are not using AI to generate intellectual property because we're not sure who owns the copyright to, to that. And companies like Electronic Arts are pretty, they're very respectful of intellectual property ownership. And, you know, we don't want to use content that was, you developed it and I somehow I got it through an artificial intelligence application and it, now it's in my game, and but you actually created that. So I think the challenge is going to be how we will come to understand what content that's artificial artificially generated can we use in the creation of new entertainment, new intellectual property, whether that's games or a new book or a new, you know, whatever that might be, I think that's a that's gonna be a really interesting challenge. And someone's gonna come in, I think, and figure out how to provide solutions to intellectual content developers like games companies and say, you know, this this content you know, we 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 know that it's available for you to use without violating someone else's intellectual property rights. So that's a, that's a really uncertain point in the future, I think.
3: How do you think it's impacting like players' expectations?
2: Early to tell, I think is probably how I would respond to that one. I think GPT Chat has GPT Chat is the fastest growing application I think that we've yet seen. I don't know how I think it's got like 200 million 200 million active users. The fast, fastest growing. It've been around for what? I don't know. 8 9 months. Ear- early to know how that's going to shape expectations. I don't know. What do you think?
3: I don't know. I just uh, from a quality perspective, I think we can look at it from a multitude of different ways. We can look at it from a coding perspective, we can look at it from a character in game character perspective and go well actually we can create a lot with AI that is going to be for the advancement of, of the experience. But then equally, it's kind of back to that emotional constraint, that, that the, the emotional fiber that I meant, uh, mentioned earlier. I think we kind of need to have that alignment between the advancement of technology at the speed it's going versus how it benefits people and and the emotional connection and the connectivity and all that good stuff behind human connection that i think there needs to be some sort of parallel or parity that goes there personally speaking i think that where ai specifically is going i think i'm probably in alignment with like musk on this one that i think we should maybe slow down and take a moment of pause of reflection because i think where we you know it's like making any decision points like you can go at the speed of the speed of light if you really want to but to what impact is that going to have on the industry, on people, on our society as a whole? I think I'm definitely in favor of technology and the advancement of technology, but I just think that, like any transformation like any disruption you need to experience and go hand in hand with that pain you know disruption is a thing that should be a friend not a foe but then equally we should have that moment of pause of reflection to look back at the landscape and the lay of the land of how far we've we've travelled in order to really progress forward and so I, I i think that we just need that time we need that kind of period of stoic thought to look upon um, the landscape as to what what opportunities lie ahead and and make sure that what we create is for the benefit of people and the advancement of, like if it's games, the advancement of the entertainment rather than any short-term means or desires. I think we could also build in value structures. I think there's a lot to be said at this point in time to be building in value structures into AI or machine learning. And I think to align those values to be more empathetic, more caring, more transparent. And then equally as companies, like uh, I saw like Wired are the first company that I've seen that have got like an AI policy. So, you know, more policy perspective as to what we're going to do. I don't believe there's a lot of time being taken into how quickly we're evolving and what impact that will have on wider society as a whole. And I I think these are just legitimate questions that any good leader at this point in time would be thinking that... You know how how like if it's in an organization, how am I impacting my people, or how am I impacting my team, or how are these decisions directly contributing to the you know their advancement and and their development? I just think that we've got a real good opportunity to almost come together as a collective and plot what the future looks like for everybody. Um, and I think we can plot it to be a, a future that's full of opportunity, full of quality, full of um, deep immersion and um, amazing technology and amazing. Yeah, opportunities and skills, but I just think that we're maybe going a bit too fast at this point in time.
2: Yeah, I certainly like the idea of having an ethical code based on at, at least a transparent set of values you know, that would guide the use of the technology. And, you know, that by transparent, that allows us to have a debate on, you know, what, which, what should be the values that that guide us around political violence. I mean, there's just so many so many social issues in the world today that you know it would be good to try and articulate what our values are in terms of is AI compatible with them or not
3: yeah, exactly. And and also we can build it into wider, you know, every everybody's on social now, but like there is a social implication of our social media usage in respect to the time in which we pay attention is reducing the division. There's, there's a lot of division within society today. The, the rise of misinformation is, like, there's an amazing guy called Stephen Hassan, that um, wrote a great book called The Cult of Trump, which is quite interesting about the whole cult dynamic and how kind of that's rising. And then equally, you can look at people like Moses Naeem that talks about the three Ps of populism, polarisation and post-truth. I just think from every level, be that individually, companies and wider governments and societies at large, we need to be having these discussions, like to what side of the scale are we on? Are we on a scale where we want more values um, to be, in and in, in, in built into, into our society and the, and the work that we produce, or do we want, you know, the other side, which I think most people will probably choose a, a values base, but it's a decision to be made really.
2: And so important in the world of entertainment that, you know, we now recognize as such a culture shaping influence on, on the, on the world I, important to have those things very well articulated to guide the design and the application and the use and so that these things don't get done in an inadvertent unaware standpoint yeah exactly
3: and i was going to say like it, it does have you know the cultural impact is really what we want to um, align to like both the cultures that we create within companies and also the wider culture at large and maybe just to finish out the ai element what are your thoughts as to the, the cultural implications that AI is having, both uh, company perspective and also um, wider society, and also the games industry too?
2: You know, one of the impacts of AI is the intense discussion and debate it's going to cause on so many things that we take for granted or don't ever discuss or are assumed. So for instance, what does plagiarism mean? What does creativity mean? Does that mean that somehow the ideas are all unique or is creativity somehow the assembling or the application of those ideas? So AI in writing essays, poetry, books, creating games, software, I think it's going to cause a really constructive debate on what's acceptable in in the future. And is it going to be okay to say something is, you know, will we have to say something is created by AI versus created by humans. And, you know, we'll be able to make such a distinction. I think the the other impact is it's going to be the next chapter in how humans work with, you know, just say it simply, how do humans work with machines? And we've always worked with tools and then increasingly complex machines. And, you know, most of us that work in office environments, we don't give a second thought to the fact that we spend most of our day with a keyboard within hands reach and much of our day looking at screens and interacting digitally, we're getting so closely interconnected and intertwined. You know, my water heater will talk to me. My water heater will decide when the shower is ready. My refrigerator will be thinking about the food. My entertainment will be thinking about what mood am I in and what would I like to, you know, what would be most entertaining for me at the moment. So I think it'd be very interesting to see how this goes in a Hopefully, in a constructive way, where humans are having a better and better life experience, aided by artificial intelligence, as opposed to somehow hindered by artificial intelligence.
3: Yeah, for sure. What do you think? You know, we've talked a little bit about AI and and like what the future may look like, but what what do you envisage to be the biggest challenges aside from AI for the games industry, and also the biggest opportunities? I think the biggest
2: challenge for the games industry is going to be how to harmonize for profit creative development entertainment development versus entertainment just developed for the for the for the fun and the joy of it by all of us all of us probably create our own forms of entertainment we know whether that's drawing or um, and so we're going to start to see how to put how to put for-profit entertainment together with this creator environment and the ability for people to self-create using artificial intelligence and all the advanced tools and content that's available, you know, and finding out, you know, way way for both of these to provide the best experience for people. I don't think it's a either, either or. In terms of opportunities, I, I think it's around storytelling. You know, how how are we going to harness all of this? technology and all of these advancements to make even more immersive interesting engaging story experiences which which may have social relevance may have social impact you know which which would be kind of the long line of tradition of all kinds of creative art forms is kind of to really just advance the human experience the the emotionality of living our lives and I think that's the biggest opportunity is to to make richer lives rather than to think, make things which are homogenous, gray, standard, you know, so, so how can we provide, you know, variety that's really kind of brings joy and happiness to people as opposed to just simply burn up your time and pass the time. Yeah, for
3: sure. I could talk to you all all day. It's been absolutely fascinating. I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And um, just to close it out, if if you have any like key thoughts and takeaways that you'd like to leave our, with our audience, that'd be great.
2: I think that maybe just one thought that comes out of our conversation, Peter, is just the we're unleashing the ability for anyone, anywhere in the world, to have an influence and impact by communicating by entertaining by sharing information th- through these digital interfaces and tools and if we can create that in a ethical high value way we're going to create a really great experience for the future and so i think we are i think we're just creating opportunity for everybody on the planet
3: amazing thank you so much it's been an absolute
2: pleasure peter great conversation thanks
1: Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made, or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode.